Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome to our church podcast. As you know, we want to help you get the most out of the new year. So we've come up with a way to help you engage with our content in a unique way. It's called 90 because believe it or not, there are 90 days between January 1st and Easter. So over these 90 days, we're going to journey through the life of Jesus every Sunday and then give you a chance to dive in deeper during the week through two additional connecting points designed to challenge and perhaps change you. To find out how you can get connected and sign up for the additional content, just go to 90.today. That's 90.today, 90.today. Well, the following presentation is actually part of the 90-day content, and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Here we go. Here are two words that always make me a little bit suspicious, and I bet perhaps they make you suspicious as well. Unlimited, unconditional, unlimited, unconditional, unlimited coverage. Are you sure? You know, once I get off the highway, is that where the limit ends? You know, is un really un, unconditional guarantee. Yeah, I'm so sure. Where's the fine print? Doesn't, don't, don't you always get nervous when somebody says unlimited Unconditional. Um, a few years ago, I was at a college um, orientation with one of my kids, and they were talking about the school, and we were already enrolled, and we were about to start in two weeks, and they're giving us all the deal. And so the food services guy came in, and he was going to explain how the food services food services work. And, it's, and, and if you you may remember this from college, or maybe you're in college, and you get a card, the card's free, and then you load it up with a bunch of money, and you get a certain number of swipes, and then once you eat up all that food, you load it up with some more money. And they were talking about the different packages. If your kid eats a little bit, if you think they're going to eat two meals meals, three meals, and then they had unlimited. You could put a certain amount of money on that card and your son or daughter could live in the cafeteria and just eat all day long, unlimited. So anyway, um, he's telling us this and he said, you know, one time he was doing this spiel and a lady raised her hand. She said, well, uh, you need to understand my son eats a lot. He eats a lot. And and he said, well, ma'am, you probably need to get the unlimited plan. She said, no, no, no. He eats a lot. He said, I, I understand, so you should probably get in there. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. And she, she just couldn't quite grasp the fact what unmeant, unmeant like not limited. And, she, and, and he said, by the time we finished going back and forth, she still wasn't satisfied that unlimited would be enough food for her son. Because there always seems to be a catch when it comes to unlimited. Now, the interesting thing about this, I would imagine that some of you may have had a similar conversation with God. You know, you hear about unlimited, you know, God's unconditional love and God's unlimited forgiveness or his unconditional love and his unlimited forgiveness. And you're thinking, okay, I know I heard about that in church in Sunday school, but have you checked my record? I don't think your un is big enough for me. And if you think perhaps God's unlimited and unconditional isn't big enough for you because of your record, I cannot tell you how happy I am today that you're gonna hear what we have to talk about. So let's just jump right back into the story. Where we left off last time, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his guys. And Passover is a big deal because Passover is an annual celebration where Jewish people would get together and celebrate the fact that God had delivered their ancestors from Egypt and Egyptian slavery. But it was a little bittersweet in the first century because Israel was an occupied territory. Israel was occupied by Rome. So the Jewish people were celebrating God's liberty and God's liberating activity in the past, but it didn't seem like God was gonna answer their prayers in 
the present. But in spite of that, Passover was a big deal and Jerusalem was the place to be. So get the picture. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims are pouring into this, even large by ancient standards, this large city, Jerusalem. Every road is packed. Everybody's moving in the same direction. The city is crowded. The hotels are full. And Jesus and his guys and his, the people who follow him constantly have joined that crowd of people moving in toward the city. And the chief priests and the Pharisees and the keeper of the temple, the keepers of the temple, they've heard that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and they're thinking this is the opportunity they've been waiting for. If only they can find him in all the crowd. The chief priest, the text tells us, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. But there was a caveat because they were smart. But they weren't gonna arrest him during the festival, they said, or there might be a riot because Jesus was extremely popular. So, hey, he's somewhere in the city. Surely we'll be able to spot him. We'll put a few people you know, to tail him. And then once the celebration's over and people start leaving the city, we move in, we separate him from the crowd, we arrest him. We'll have him put to death. And then we're going to send a group to find Lazarus and we're going to put Lazarus to death too, to death as well. And then maybe this whole thing will be over with and behind us. The text says that the next day, the next day being about five days from the actual Passover celebration, There are spies on the lookout for Jesus, fans eagerly expecting his arrival. The text tells us that about five days from Passover, the great crowd that had come for the festival, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now he'd been kind of traveling around these other little villages and towns and all of a sudden there's this rumor, he's coming into the city, he's coming into the city, which gate will he come through, from which direction will he come, they weren't sure, and there's this buzz everywhere. The whole city is expecting Jesus. And the reason they're so excited is they're thinking maybe this will be the moment, this will be the Passover, that we finally not only celebrate Israel's um, freedom and being set free from Egyptian bondage, but maybe this is the Passover where we celebrate liberty from Roman bondage as well. Maybe Jesus will proclaim himself king and the city will be full of patriots. So Rome is nervous, Pilate is nervous, the Pharisees, nerves. Everybody is on the lookout for Jesus and they spot him coming. And when they see him from a distance, word travels quickly and people line up on both sides of the road and they took out branches and they went out to meet him and they begin to wave them in the air and to lay them on the streets and they begin shouting, Hosanna, 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 which meant save us now, save us now, save us now. This was a cry, this was a prayer that the Jews prayed to God and suddenly they're focusing this prayer on a person, Jesus, as he rides in to town. But then it escalates. Blessed is he, they begin to say. Blessed is he who comes in the name or who comes with the authority of God. And then it turned political. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they had assumed that Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for the nation. But in fact, Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for you. To do something for the entire world. That in the next few days, unbeknownst to them, 
And the next, in the next few days, this would take everyone by surprise. In the next few days, what Jesus would do would be so confusing that they wouldn't understand it until after it had all been completed. In the next few days, Jesus would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and he would replace God's covenant with Israel. Because many centuries before this first century event, God had promised Abraham that he would become a nation and through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. And Jesus is about to fulfill that promise. And in fulfilling that promise, he would replace God's covenant with Israel. So for the next few days, Jesus is in the temple and he's laying low and he's moving around at night. And there's a Jesus sighting here and there's a Jesus sighting there. But by the time they get there, Jesus and his guys are already gone. He even goes to the temple and teaches a little bit, but exits before they can arrest him. And then two days out from Passover, two days out from Passover, something that would have seemed miraculous took place. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law finally got a break. They finally had an answer to prayer. One of Jesus' closest followers breaks rank. The text says, and Judas, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And the text says, Luke says that they were delighted. And the reason they were delighted is because actually they were afraid. They were afraid that if Jesus became king and if Jesus declared himself Messiah, that they would lose everything. That Jesus, that the Jesus becoming king meant they would lose everything that was valuable to them. That he would take things away. And perhaps that's the reason you were afraid for Jesus to be the king of your life because of what he might take away. But as they were about to discover, Jesus did not come to take anything. Jesus came to give something. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed with Judas and they were delighted and they agreed to give him money. And he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And so the stage is set. The kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of heaven. The kingdoms of this world with their top-down arrangement, with their violence-oriented arrangement, with their we-can-handle-things, we-control-things arrangement, with their imperial system, the kingdoms of this world versus the kingdom and the plan of God. And their plan would actually succeed, but their objective would not be met. Because unlike them, Jesus did not cling to his life. It was his intention all along to give his life away. But before he did that, there were two loose ends that he had to tie up. And Passover and the Passover meal was the perfect opportunity to do just that. So he sends some friends out into the city to find a place that he and his disciples, the 12, can celebrate Passover meal together. It's a place that's off the beaten path where they won't be interrupted, where they won't be arrested, somewhere where no one will be able to find them, that they can have peace and have these final conversations because Jesus knew his time was drawing to a close. And as they began the Passover meal, something happened that was so disruptive that I'm absolutely convinced that the disciples were never able to put all of this together until after the resurrection. But here's what happened. While they were having the meal, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, more like crackers. Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he snapped it in half, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. 
Luke's version. This is my body given for you. And just before they were about to take their first bite, they stopped and looked at each other and thought, did he just say what we think he said? Wait, wait, wait. This is your body? But he wasn't finished. It got even more offensive. Do this, he said. Do this in remembrance of, to which they could have said, well, you don't have to tell us what to do this in remembrance of. We've been doing this in remembrance of something since we were little boys. Since we were little boys, since we were children with our fathers and our grandfathers, we did this in remembrance of God coming to Egypt and taking his people out and punishing the nation of Egypt and punishing Pharaoh. We know exactly what we're doing this in remembrance of. Jesus smiled and said, that's all changing. From now on, when you celebrate Passover, you will do this in remembrance of me. Now, Gentiles, that we're all Gentiles, most of us, unless you're Jewish and you're way ahead of me if you're Jewish, but Gentiles, let me explain something to you at this point. Everybody should have gotten up and left the room. This should have been the end. I mean, okay, Jesus, you've contradicted Moses. You've set yourself up and above and apart from Moses. And you can mess with Moses, even though that's gotten us in a lot of trouble and you're not very popular with the religious leaders because you've kind of dissed Moses over and over and over. But Jesus, look at us. You don't mess with Passover. You can't replace Passover. You can't make Passover all about you. I mean, let me try to illustrate it this way. Imagine this coming December, I show up on the first weekend of December and say, hey, you know, churches, it's, hey, we're about to you know, move into this holiday season. And, you know, normally on De- throughout December, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. But this December, we're gonna celebrate my birth. Every single weekend we get together, we have some new songs that have been written. They're all about me. This whole thing will crescendo. We're gonna have an Andy Eve um, service, you know, with candlelights. Then on Sunday morning, we're all gonna gather and I'm gonna put a big chair out here and sit here and you're all just gonna talk about how great I am. And we're just, you know, this December, it's all about me. And all of you would leave the church and you should. In fact, if I ever do that, you have my permission ahead of time. Leave the church, something bad has happened, right? Now, here's my point. Look up here. This was way worse than that. This was way more disruptive than that. You, Jesus, okay, we, you're great and all, you know, but you can't make Passover about you. That was the beginning of the meal. Jesus just goes back to the meal. And they're looking at each other and like, did you? Did, maybe we misunderstood. Maybe this whole, you know, triumphal entry thing kind of went to his head. I mean, well, So, but he wasn't done. So they eat their meal, have a conversation, who knows what's running through their minds. And then we're told this in the same way, in the same way, after supper, so they eat the whole meal, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said this, this cup is, to which they could have said, hang on, whoa, 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 we know what this cup is. This cup represents the blood that was shed by animals the night that our ancestors left Egypt and went to the promised land and they had to slaughter a lamb, a, you know, a spotless lamb and put the blood over the door, down the sides of the door and the death angel passed through Egypt and we all left under the blood of the lamb and you know, went to Mount Sinai and God established us as a new nation. I mean, we know, we know exactly what this represents. So Jesus, if we could, could we please stick with the 1500 year old script that we all learned as children? I want you to understand how extraordinarily disruptive this was. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup and here's what he said. This cup is the new covenant. 
Not a new covenant. The new covenant. This cup has always represented a celebration of God's covenant with the nation. Up until this night, every time you got together, it was a celebration of the fact that God established a brand new relationship with the nation of Israel. But from now on, when you take this cup, you are gonna celebrate a brand new covenant that begins tonight. And if they'd been paying attention in Sunday school, these Jewish boys knew that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted the day would come when God would establish a new covenant that would replace the current covenant. In fact, this was 650 years before this moment with Jesus and the disciples. The prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, the days are coming, so pay attention and get ready. Somebody take notes. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That covenant that God established with Moses when Moses came down with the 10 commandments and all the rituals and the rules and all the stipulations and all the I will and you have to and if you don't, I won't. He said, it's not gonna be like that one. But there will be a replacement covenant. But the question that they should have asked if they'd been thinking straight and we find out next week they weren't thinking straight because everything was moving so fast. The question they would have to think is, well, if you're establishing a new covenant, is it gonna be like the old one? How will it be different? And the prophet Jeremiah, 650 years earlier, answered that question. He said, I will put my law. Here's the difference between the two covenants. I will put my law, the law that was written on some stone, the, the law that God brought, that, sent, that Moses brought down from the mountain. He said, in the new covenant, there's gonna be a new law. And I'm gonna put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. They will not have to memorize the laws and the stipulations for the new covenant. It will be a covenant of conscience. And this had been promised hundreds of years before the night that Jesus said, I am inaugurating, I am unleashing, I am establishing not a new covenant, the one you should have been waiting for all along. Back to Passover. He says, this cup is the new covenant, the one that was promised long ago, the one that you should have been looking for, the one that's about to begin now. A new kind, and this new covenant represents a new kind of relationship because that's what a covenant is. A covenant is an arrangement or an agreement or a contract between two parties. And this new covenant would represent a new kind of relationship, not between God and a nation, but between God and the nations, not between God and a group of people, but between God and individual people. But the question they should have asked, the one they should have wrestled to the ground, the one that should have disturbed them, if they had been thinking straight, is okay. But what kind of covenant is it? Would it be like the old one with so many rules and conditions and punishments and blessings and we can't even keep up with most of that? Or is this new covenant gonna be more like the one with our father Abraham? That was more of an unconditional covenant because God said to Abraham, look at me, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation and I'm gonna bless the world through you and you can work with me or you can work against me. But Abraham, when all is said and done, you are gonna be a great nation and I am gonna bless the world through you. I'm making you a promise. I hope you'll work with me. But at the end, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation and through that great nation, I am gonna bless the world. So this new covenant, what kind of covenant would it be? Now, let's hit pause on Jesus and the disciples. Okay, pause. And now I wanna talk to you just a little bit about ancient covenants. Then we're gonna come back to the story so you can understand the significance of what's happening in the room that night. There were essentially three kind of covenants that dominated the ancient landscape. 
The first kind of covenant is what's called a bilateral parity treaty. Now, there's not gonna be a test, but you should pay attention, okay? It's called a bilateral parity treaty, and this is a covenant or an agreement between two equals. It's an I will if you will, and you will if I will, and if you don't, I'm gonna stop, and if I don't do what you, you expect me to do, you don't have to do what I'm expecting you to do. Just think business contract. That's what this kind of treaty was, or, or treaty was. It's two groups get together, they're equals, and they come up with a contract, they both sign, or they both agree or they cut their wrist or share blood or kiss or hug. There were all kinds of things they would do or trade daughters. You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff. So this was between two equals. Then there was the bi- what was called the bilateral suzerainty treaty. Now a suzerain is like a king or a leader or a powerful person. And the way that this worked is that the suzerain or the king would dictate terms and conditions to a lesser power, a vassal who didn't have much choice in the matter. The best way to understand this is to think curfew, okay? Son, it's my car. These are my keys. I'm gonna let you drive my car and I expect you to be home at 10 o'clock. What time? Say it out loud, 10 o'clock. So here's the keys. Now, if you don't get home by 10, you don't get to drive this next time, okay? And for every 10 minutes you're late, I'm adding 20 minutes, you know, this goes on and on and on. And so the vassal, which is the child, is like, thank you, father, and I'm gonna try to obey your rules, and I don't get to give you rules, you give me the rules, because you're the suzerain, and I'm the vassal, okay? You got it, that's how it works. Now, here's the most important thing about that. God's relationship with the nation of Israel was a suzerain, that was a bilateral suzerain treaty. It was like curfew. God said to the nation, here are the rules. And God dictated all the terms. When Moses came down from the mountain of Mount Sinai, hundreds and hundreds of years before this Passover, when he came down from Mount Sinai, he had all the rules and all the conditions and all the punishments. If you'd like to read them, they're outlined at the end of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus and most of Deuteronomy. It's the parts of the Bible that put you to sleep. Now, they're really important, but they're not for us because we're not part of ancient Israel. That's why when you read them, you're like, who in the world could do all this stuff? It is so complicated. But God, this is so important, God was founding a nation. He was founding a civilization. He was founding a people that had to have rules and laws. He was establishing a brand new society. So he established a I will, if you will, covenant, but if you don't, I won't. So here's how it went. He said to the nation, you can read it for yourself. He said to the nation, obey me. Don't worship any other gods. Keep my rules and I'll keep you safe. Your crops will grow. I'll make sure that you're victorious in war. But if you don't keep my rules, if you worship other gods, I'm not gonna protect you and your crops aren't gonna grow and I'm not gonna be for you anymore. And Israel's entire ancient history was faithful to God, unfaithful to God, faithful to God, unfaithful to God. And one time, this is amazing, at one point, God actually put the whole nation, parents, you should appreciate this, God put the whole nation in timeout. That's where timeout started. They finally abandoned God and they worshiped idols and God said, okay, I have warned you. We had an agreement. You broke your end of the agreement, took all the leaders of the nation of Israel and put them in Babylon for a 70 year timeout. And then when they learned their lesson, he allowed them to come back into the land. So this was a suzerainty vassal treaty. I am the king, you are the subjects. Here are my demands. If you don't obey, you will be punished. If you do obey, you will be punished blessed. Now, there's a third type of treaty that was common in ancient times. It was called a promissory covenant or a patron covenant. In this particular covenant, this is so important, one party, just one party, binds itself to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. 
One party binds itself to an obligation. It makes a promise to the other party that's for the benefit of the other party. It is not bilateral. It's not I will if you will, and if you don't, I won't. It's unilateral, and it's unconditional. The best way to understand this one is to think middle school crush, okay? You either wrote the note, read the note, or a friend of yours got the note and let you read the note, and the note went something like this. I promise to love you forever. I'm your friend forever. Even though your family's moving to San Antonio, I'm still gonna be, I'm still gonna love you. And you know, distance is, you know, it was just unconditional, unconditional. It was all one-sided. It it was the promise of unwavering love. I don't expect you to do anything for me. It's all about you. Now, fortunately, if you had a middle school crush, you did not ratify that covenant by taking the neighbor's cat and slicing it in half and sacrificing it, which brings me to a really important part of understanding ancient covenants. In ancient covenants, they were all pretty much ratified the same way. Something had to die on all of them. And what generally they would do is take an animal, depending on how wealthy the parties were, and sometimes multiple animals, and they would literally split them right down the middle and they would lay them open. And then each party that was making the covenant together would literally walk through the halves of the dead animal. In fact, we talk about cutting deals. That language, we're gonna cut a deal, came from this ancient idea of cutting a covenant. That's what they would call it. That's what the Hebrew word means. We're gonna cut a covenant. And as they walk through these dead animal parts together, here's what they were essentially saying to each other. Both parties were saying this. May it be unto me as it is this most unfortunate animal if I violate the terms of this covenant. Exactly, whoa is the right response to this kind of covenant, whoa. In other words, I am pledging, I am pledging my life. If I violate this, if I violate this covenant, this is a blood covenant between both parties. So back to the three covenants. So, The promissory covenant, this is super important. The promissory covenant, in the promissory covenant, only one person is making a promise, right? So when you, when a group, when a person made a promissory covenant, they would slice the animals open, cut them in half, but instead of both parties walking between, only one party would walk between. Why? Because only one party in the covenant was making a promise. It's all on them. Now, here's the most fascinating thing of all. And if you're Jewish, oh, you gotta, you're so lucky. Okay, this is so amazing. When God appeared to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you a great nation. And then I'm gonna bless the entire world through that nation. They ratified that agreement with the sacrifice of an animal. And you can read about this in Genesis. And they cut open several animals and they halved them up and there was space in between. And Abraham did not pass between the pieces because this was all on God. Now, here was the question that night at Passover. God's establishing a new covenant. God's establishing a new covenant with the world, as they would find out. What kind of covenant is it? Jesus answers that in the way he explains the new covenant. Here's what he said, back to Jesus and his guys up in the upper room. This cup is the new covenant. And the next statement clarified what kind of covenant it was gonna be. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I will play the role, Jesus was saying. I will play the role of the animal that is sacrificed to inaugurate and to launch this new covenant. To which if they were thinking straight, they would have thought, okay, that's your part. What's our part? Which is poured out for you. Guys, he would say, 
And those guys would later say to the Gentiles and Jews that they preached and reached and eventually to the whole world, he would say, you, you are on the receiving side. I, as a representative of God who have come to establish his covenant, I'm on the giving side. You are on the receiving side. Or to say it another way, it's this way. It's for you, it's on me. It's 100% for you. It's 100% on me. Matthew's account adds a few words. This cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So, so, Jesus, this is all going so fast. This is not what we were expecting. So wait, so you are establishing the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied? You're establishing the new covenant? And, and in this covenant, Jesus, you are representing God's interest in establishing the covenant. And from now on, when we gather, we're no longer gonna celebrate God, your, our father delivering our people from Egypt. From now on, we're gonna celebrate the establishment of this new covenant. But the blood part's throwing us because remember, most of what Jesus said doesn't make any sense until after the resurrection. What do you mean this covenant is gonna be in your blood? Are you kidding? You are the most popular person in this city. I mean, people are waiting for you to step out during Passover and proclaim yourself king. What do you mean this covenant that you're beginning, that you're ratifying is gonna be in your blood for the forgiveness of sin? Wait a minute, blood for the forgiveness of sin. That's the temple equation. That's the temple equation. That's what we've experienced our whole life. We go to temple, we take an animal, they sacrifice the animal, we get forgiveness of sins. And now you're talking as if you are the animal that results in forgiveness of sins, but Jesus... You're going so fast. Even if this was true, even if this was is literal, you, you can only spill your blood once. And they should have seen this coming. Because on day one, when Jesus stepped onto the pages of history as an adult, John the Baptist, looking to this very moment, three years or so earlier, said to the crowd gathered there, on the banks of the Jordan River. Look, look, look. The Lamb of God, who single-handedly, all by himself, gonna take it all on him, who has come to take away the sin of the entire world. And the next day, this new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of your sin would be officially ratified with Roman nails and Roman steel. The empire that best represented the kingdoms of this world was victorious for a moment. But God was up to something bigger. The new covenant the new covenant, a new, a new arrangement, a new agreement between God and this entire image-bearing rebel race. A new covenant for every nation in every generation. This was the big one. This was the final one. This, this was the everlasting one. This, this was the one that would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's arrangement with the nation of Israel. It was the unconditional covenant. It was a promissory 
covenant. Only one half of the relationship, only one party in the relationship would act on and inaugurate this covenant. And it would be Jesus, God's son. It was unilateral, one-sided, unlimited coverage. And would there be terms and conditions like God's relationship with, with Abraham, with Moses and the people of Israel? Would there be terms and conditions? The answer is yes, but they would be nothing. They would be nothing like the terms and conditions. They would be nothing like the terms and conditions, the laws, the ceremonies, the stipulations that God rolled out and laid out for the nation when he established that covenant at Mount Sinai. In fact, I think if we were to say to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostle John, if we were to say to John, John, I mean, this is, this, is, this is really too good to be true, but it's so good, I hope it's true, that God established a relationship or the potential of a relationship with me through Jesus, the son, that he forgave all of my sins, that it was unilateral, that he did the whole thing, that it was really for me and on him. I mean, what do I do? And I think John, who sat there that night and was as confused as everybody. John, who watched Jesus die. John, who put his arm around Jesus' mother to take care of her. John, who peered into an empty tomb. And John, who had breakfast with Jesus on the beach. And John, who gave his life so that the world would know that God had done something for the world. If we were to say to John, John, how do I get in on that? How do I respond? If it's for me, how do I make it mine? I think John would say, it, the best words I know are, are these words, that whoever just trusts in, that whoever just says yes, that whoever believes it happened and believes it's for them, you won't perish, you won't be left out of that covenant. You will have eternal new covenant life. Come on, who wouldn't say yes to that? If we were to say, Peter, Peter, it's too good to be true. It's too good not to be true, Peter. How do I get? And I think Peter would have an even more, an even simpler answer than John. I think Peter would take us back to day one when he met Jesus. Jesus said, let's go fishing. Peter's like, you don't know anything about fishing. We've been fishing. Okay, you're a carpenter. You know, that's good, but we're fishermen. And then they caught so many fish, they didn't know what to do with them. And Peter falls at Jesus' feet and he recognizes, okay, I don't know who you are, but you are in a different category than me. I'm not worthy to be on the same boat as you. And Peter looks up at Jesus and Jesus smiles. And he said, Peter, I know all about you. But here's what I want you to do. I just want you to follow me. And my friends, that is the invitation to the new covenant. It's simply follow me. It's follow me with this caveat. I know all about you. I know what you did. I know what you didn't do. I know what you promised to do. I know you can't even keep your own rules. I know you've broken all of mine. But all of that is covered under my unlimited, unconditional covenant that I established in my blood for you. It's on me. It's for you. It's on me, it's for you. It's on me, but it's for you. So, just come. Follow me. You say, Andy, it can't be that simple. It's that simple. Andy, but there's gotta, uh, 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 uh. 
You're just used to how you've been treated by the people that you know. This is why Jesus said, he's your perfect heavenly father. This is why Jesus said, it's as as simple as trusting that it's true. And then it becomes all for you. So that night, Jesus made it clear that he'd come to replace everything that was in place. Here's the part we have a hard time getting our arms around. This is the part that might disturb you. I hope so. That Jesus came to replace everything from the beginning of Exodus through the end of Malachi. We're done with all of that. There is a new covenant in town for you. But there was one more loose end that Jesus had to tie up. So don't miss next week. Well, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content on this message and all the messages that we're doing between now and Easter, I want to invite you again to go to 90.today. That's 90.today and sign up. At 90.today, you'll find a host of different ways to engage deeper with our church and the extraordinary life of Jesus. We'll see you next time.